A good friend of mine from the Army spent a few years in the infantry during the troop surge in Iraq in 2007. He described patrolling the country in a way I hadn't heard before, and, and I think it's a perfect illustration. He said, Imagine a long hallway with the lights turned off. The hallway goes on for miles, and every morning you wake up and someone puts a blindfold on you. Then, you're forced to walk down that hallway blindfolded, and at some point, from some doorway, someone's going to punch you in the face. And now, just imagine making that walk every day, blindfold on, just bracing yourself for that punch to the jaw. It was a crude example for sure, and he certainly told it with a lot more expletives than is fitting for a history podcast, but it always stuck with me. And even though his example took place in Iraq, the roads in Afghanistan operate in much the same manner. We have a tendency in developed countries to take our infrastructure for granted. If the interstate's backed up, you can usually take one of a few alternate routes along paved roads to bypass any trouble and continue along the way. It helps that these roads aren't subject to hastily set up impromptu checkpoints by insurgent groups. We don't even consider that the trash bag on the side of the road is full of shrapnel, rigged to explode when you roll across a pressure plate. You normally aren't subject to bandits, and the most you have to fear from the cops is usually a speeding ticket. But in Afghanistan, the roads are dangerous, and even though main routes are set up to have police checkpoints every few miles, there is no guarantee the police will come to your aid, or that those checkpoints are even manned at all. There is a dirt road that runs 150 miles from Kandahar City to Tarankot, the capital of Aruzgan province. It is known by a few names, none of which are inventive. Kandahar-Aruzgan Highway, the Kandahar-Tarankot Highway, but to military forces it is Route Bear. Most of the roads in Afghanistan have animal names, just, just so you know. Although coalition forces no longer maintain a large base in Tarankot, at one point the Australians, US, and the Dutch all had forces there. From Kandahar to Tarankot, it was a 20-hour convoy trip along the dirt road and flanked on all sides by rocky hills and mountains from which ambushes can be conducted. To better protect convoys, coalition forces employed a non-government militia under the command of Mahdi Ullah Khan, a Popolzai Pashtun warlord based in Aruzgan. Mahdi Ullah Khan would use his well-trained men to protect convoys carrying military equipment and humanitarian aid and was, for the most part, largely successful. However, this protection came at a cost. You see, the average um, Afghan makes about 400 US dollars per year. In 2008, Madiola was earning over $2 million per month. I'm Kyle Reynolds. This is Green and White. In 2006, when the Dutch assumed responsibility for ensuring the greater peace in Aruzgan, there was no way they were letting Madiola Khan have a position of power. One of their requirements for taking over as the provincial reconstruction team was that John Muhammad Khan, the provincial governor, be removed from power. You may remember John Muhammad Khan from episode 1. In fact, if you haven't listened to episode 1, I would recommend it for some background. John Muhammad Khan, or JMK, was Madiola's uncle and used his position as governor to, in simplistic terms, call down the full power of international forces on his personal enemies, the Gilzai Pashtuns of Aruzgan by simply accusing them of working with the Taliban. Madiola did a lot of the dirty work for his uncle, which involved killing his uncle's rivals and marginalizing those Gilzai Pashtuns in Aruzgan. 
But while John Muhammad Khan fought against the Soviets as a mujahid during the 1980s, Mariola was a product of the U.S. invasion. On one hand, you have the older mujahid, John Muhammad Khan, who rose to prominence during the war against the Soviets. And on the other hand, you have his nephew, Mariola, who took advantage of a new war to gain power. Before 2001, Mariola worked as a taxi driver. He was illiterate, like many Afghans, but he was a Popolzai, like his uncle, and like Hamid Karzai. So, when the U.S. invaded in 2001, he joined his uncle, JMK's militia, to help Hamid Karzai retake Ruzgan. From there, Mariola Khan worked for his uncle and, by extension, Hamid Karzai, to strengthen Karzai's influence in the province. But when the Dutch kicked John Muhammad Khan out of Aruzgan in 2006, Mariola used his uncle's Popolzai militia as the Kandahar Aruzgan Highway Battalion. Even though the Dutch supposedly dissolved this private military force, Mariola continued to run it. The Ministry of the Interior, that portion of the Afghan government that controls the police forces, even paid some of Mariola's soldiers' salaries, despite Mariola not having a government position. And you have to stop and ask yourself how this was allowed to go on. And you have to wonder why the Afghan government, the United States, and the Australians were all funneling money to this man. And the answer goes back to the start of this podcast. That highway, the main route from Kandahar City to Tarankot, the capital of Aruzgan, is so important, and was even more important back in the mid-2000s, when the larger presence of international forces. So, all throughout Aruzgan were these small outposts that needed to receive supplies of food, ammunition, clothing, and medicine. If the Taliban could cut off or interdict Route Bear, Afghan and international troops at these remote outposts would be cut off, and for many reasons, the Afghan army, the National Army, wasn't up to the task of defending Route Bear. So international forces turned to the man who could do the job well. Mariola Khan was a lot of things, but no one can say he was bad at his job. In Afghanistan, if you could figure out a way to secure vital ground lines of communication, someone would pay you handsomely for it. According to a Vice News article, Mariola would choose a random day of the week to rally up his forces for what the article called Security Day. On this day, convoys of trucks would make the drive from Kandahar Airfield to Tarankot and small outposts loaded with supplies intended for Afghan and international forces. Mariola's men escorted these convoys and charged each truck about $1,000 US for passage. The closest comparison to Security Day would probably be 2015's Mad Max remake, and that really isn't an exaggeration. These convoys were supplying ammunition and fuel, among other things, but were headed to Tarankot rather than Gastown or the Bullet Farm in the movie. Just picture a fleet of Ford Rangers driven by Mariola's militia, escorting lines of fuel trucks, up-armored American Humvees and MRAPs, the top-heavy mine-resistant behemoths armed with heavy machine guns and automatic grenade launchers. Travel along this road was done at a slow pace due to IEDs and mines emplaced by the insurgency. IEDs had to be cleared out, which could halt convoy movement and result in vehicles coming under attack by a Taliban ambush. I think Mariela's men performed their jobs well for a number of reasons. Some of his militia were paid by the Afghan government, true, but they all received additional compensation from Mariela himself. A large portion of the militia was funded solely by Mariola, using the money he made from his protection racket. And compared to the average Afghan policeman or soldier, Mariola paid well. Supposedly, when one of his men was wounded, Mariola even paid for him to receive treatment in India. He bought them the best weapons and best equipment. The fact that many of his men were Popol Zai and fought under his uncle, John Muhammad Khan, 
only helped to secure their loyalty. Of course, Mariola was vicious, just like his uncle in fighting this so-called terror. In his book, No Good Men Among the Living, Anand Gopal tells us an incident where an IED hit Mariola's convoy, killing one of his men. Mariola jumped out, grabbed a bystander, a shopkeeper who, the book said, happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, tied him to the back of his truck, and dragged him along the highway until he was dead and unrecognizable to his family when the body was eventually returned. But despite their fierce loyalty, Mariola's men were not Green Berets. So when Western forces began using Mariola's militia to escort the convoys, and attacks became less frequent, people started asking questions. And when Mariola's militia was not paid, convoys were attacked as if the enemy knew they were coming. Of course, Mariola Khan denied involvement with the Taliban. Why would anyone admit to working with the Taliban if they were receiving money from the countries fighting against them? But despite denials by Mariola, it's reasonable to assume he was working with nefarious elements. Control of the highway meant he could control the flow of opium and stop competing drug lords from using his road in the name of security. His own drug runners and those who paid protection were free to transport opium along the same routes international forces used to move supplies. Also, it's unreasonable to assume you could be as powerful as Mariola without a few contacts in the Taliban. It's likely Mariela would simply pay them off so they wouldn't attack convoys. And it's also reasonable to assume Mariela would use his men to attack vehicles who didn't pay into his protection racket and later blame it on the insurgency. He was making a lot of money off his protection racket, but Mariola always wanted to become the provincial chief of police for Aruzgan, one of the top positions in any province. The provincial chief of police was in charge of all the security in a province, while the provincial governor managed the bureaucracy. But the Dutch wouldn't let Mariola anywhere near this position, and instead put up with Jumagul, who was widely disliked for corruption and crime. Even though the Dutch wouldn't allow Mariola to become the police chief, they ignored how much money he made as the head of his militia. And Mariola wasn't dumb during this time. Unlike his uncle, John Muhammad Khan, Mariola used his money to buy goodwill in Aruzgan. He built over 70 mosques, funded scholarships for students to study in Kabul, and held weekly meetings with tribal leaders. So, in 2011, no one, except the Gilzai Pashtuns, complained when Hamid Karzai finally appointed Mariola to be the chief of police for Aruzgan. As police chief, Aruzgan province became more secure than it had been under Mariola's uncle. Reports suggest that Mariola arranged meetings with tribal elders and listened to the people of Aruzgan. And according to some reports, Mariola would sit dressed in traditional Afghan clothes on the floor of his home while citizens lined up seeking an audience with him. He resolved tribal disputes and made judgments on disagreements between people like the great cons of old. To some, he was a reformed man, no longer a hitman for his uncle, but a respected leader. Sure, he ran drugs and extorted travelers, but at the end of the day, he funneled that money back into his province. It is what we called an Afghan solution for Afghan problems. So, who is to say if Mariola could have reconciled the marginalized tribes of Aruzgan given enough time? He was killed in Kabul, on March 18, 2015. 
The official account says he was walking the streets of Kabul's 6th police district around 8 p.m. when a person wearing a burqa approached him and detonated the suicide vest. The Taliban claimed responsibility in the same way they claimed the hit on his uncle, John Muhammad Khan. But Afghan Member of Parliament Abdullah Yubi told the Sydney Morning Herald that he washed Madiola's body and there were no lacerations. But there were two bullet holes, one on his neck and one on his shoulder. There were implications that rivals in the government had Madiola killed, or that Pakistani intelligence, fearing Madiola's power, had him assassinated using Taliban assassins on their payroll. Regardless of who killed him, Madiola's death left a power vacuum in Aruzgan, and the province became destabilized following his death. When I was in Afghanistan in 2016, me and the other analysts, advisors, and security forces worked to deal with the fallout and rapidly deteriorating security. In the New York Times article on Madiola's assassination, Haji Syed Ali, a tribal elder from the Dayrawood district of Aruzgan, said, The death of Madiola Khan is a big blow to the people of Aruzgan. Then he said these prophetic words, The Taliban will come again and the districts will fall into their hands. And Haji Saeed was right, as anyone based in southern Afghanistan in 2016 could tell you. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Green and White. If you learned something and want to learn more, be sure to subscribe. My email address is greenandwhitepodcast at gmail.com, and I have set up a Twitter account at greenandwhite27. I have some work to do for episode 3 and may even have some interviews in the works, so I hope you will continue listening. Thanks again.